So hello and welcome to episode 107 of IRC Book Club. Today's the big one. After three weeks of reading Coaching Winning Sales Teams, we have the authors here on the show. We have Tony Smith, we have Lynn Pickford, and we have Tim Chapman. And obviously there's me and Mike uh, to add some grumpy middle-aged nonsense to the <laughs> proceedings. Thank you for the book, everyone. Um, Mike and I have debated this one, haven't we, Michael? We fell out about it today, Jonathan. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think we fell out. I don't think me and you ever fall out, do we? To a degree. I think if you listen to it, you'd think we were falling out about it. Yeah, so we've got quite a few questions we wanted to ask you guys as the authors. What we usually find is we read a book and book club, we separate it into three weekly shows. And what often surprises people when they come on the show is the extent to which we've actually really read the books. So we do actually read every single page of every book we read and we make notes and we talk about it. And then what we find is that you get a whole new layer of context when you speak to the authors. So we'll debate stuff and stuff that we won't have really understood. When people come on the show, you realize, oh, Christ, that's what they meant. And it just adds a whole new layer. So, Mike, I guess you've probably got a few things you want to ask firstly. Yeah, I'll kick it off. So, so I, I take, I've taken these notes and I've got quite a few things to start with. So there are no particular preference. Um, page 57, you talk about uh, feedback without freaking people out. Now, I know I've got two sales people here and what i have found having been a salesperson for a long time is that the easiest people to give feedback to are actually salespeople because they get feedback all the time in the job they get feedback of we don't want to buy what you're selling we've not got any budget blah de blah so so actually they've not they're not particularly fragile characters i haven't found salespeople. so when you talk about feedback without freaking out i personally think that salespeople are probably quite used to getting bad feedback so why do you think it's so important to be careful about people's about freaking people out when you're giving feedback to salespeople? Well I'll take that one guys um hi well um thanks for having us on the podcast today we're really delighted about that um on the feedback thing yes salespeople get well we all get feedback all the time don't we from you know, yes. spouses, you know, friends. We, we're all getting feedback, whether it's in jest or whether it's in, in uh, a serious nature. But what happens with salespeople is just because they're getting feedback all the time doesn't mean they're absorbing it and doesn't mean they don't raise the defences and doesn't mean they act upon it. And what you rarely see, in my experience anyway, Tim and Tony can speak this for this themselves, is you don't see salespeople seeking feedback. So mm -hmm. they brace themselves for it. And what we know from the neuroscience side of things is that when we have a perceived threat, so whether it's real or perceived, we automatically raise our internal defenses. So we shut down to a certain extent the open side of our brain. So if you put yourself in a salesperson's shoes, and I do this personally myself, I start to get some feedback and already my narrative and internal dialogue is of a defensive nature. I didn't really mean to say that. I didn't mean to do that. Mm. Um, you know, maybe they're wrong, maybe I, you know, and this kind of dialogue. And what I'm not doing at that moment is really, really honestly and uh, cleanly listening to that feedback and taking it in a way that's not, doesn't immediately raise a defense. So I hand to my All right, point. Okay, right. Point. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. So what you're saying, Lynn, is that, People are even because Mike and I talked about this a lot earlier, and I said that the job of being a salesman gives you a lot of feedback. Just getting up in the morning and doing your day's work actually is full of feedback, isn't it? Make a bad call, customer doesn't want to talk to you, get throws you off the phone. Not everybody, I guess, hears that feedback in the heat of battle and and is open to it. But I think what you're pointing out is that. When the feedback is coming, people start telling themselves stories about what that feedback's going to be, yeah. and therefore you've got to deliver it yeah. in a way that means that they'll take all of it. And you use the word clean there. Yeah. Could you expand on what you mean a little bit by that? Yeah, what I mean by clean is that the feedback is coming in, in, a, in a way that's of pure intent and that the person who's receiving that feedback doesn't have an internal voice mashing it up into a further cat catastrophization or a future story 
or a defensive nature. So they just hear what's being said. And because it's clean for themselves, they can take that away and they can start to look at that feedback. Is it true? Have I heard it before? Do I want to do something about it? You know, they can, they can start to really rationalise it and decide to act, act upon it or not. Yeah, I was always taught to separate the behaviour from the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that it, often it was very easy when you're giving people feedback that they hear you are a bad person, you are a bad salesperson, you are bad. Yeah. And I think well, that can be very, da- well, depending on the individual, that can be very damaging, can't it? Well, because we take everything personally, because we're humans, whether you separate the behaviour from the person or not, they perceive it in the brains as as a, as a hurtful or, you know, some, some people see it as a gift and that they're the people who are receiving it. It, it, it. it's been created safety and it's been given in a way that's of pure intention. Um, but, but I think it is right to separate the behaviour from the person and be explicit about that, but do everything you can to create safety for that person. Hmm. So the other point, the other point is around actually getting the action from it, isn't it? I think we get a ton of feedback, but I think as salespeople, we gradually create this shell around ourselves, and it bounces off, and we actually don't change anything inherently in what we do. So I think it's actually that point of Lynn is you might get a lot of feedback, but do you change anything? Probably not over time because you just that skin gets harder. In fact, I was thinking about that this morning because I'm doing a bit of work with a client at the moment where I'm having to give a feedback to a guy <laughs> about a deal that slipped. Um, right. Feels like I'm back in back in the seat again. <laughs> and uh, you know, you've got that little hard shell around it, and it's how do you deliver that piece of feedback without it just being why why did you let that deal slip again? And it becomes across a you know it's very negative. And what's the action from it? There's a piece of feedback, but what do you want then to happen? But uh, equally, there's an element of coachability mm-hmm. in the individual, isn't there? Um, you know, I think sometimes part of this is about smart hiring yes, and, and, and actually interviewing wisely enough to think, do you know what? This person wants to be coached and can be. Yeah. I mean, I, that goes, yeah, I mean, I, I focus very heavily on that, certainly with the, the first book, The Secret Code, where we looked at what are the behaviours and trying to hire to, to that that and coachable people and I'm sure Tony has got a view on that from the sports side in terms of any when he's, he's certainly recruiting and looking at the team now for for next season so he, he, may, he may, we'll probably have a view on that as well absolutely yeah it's a, it's a really big part of recruitment seeing who who is capable of being coached and whether they want coaching and they're looking for improvement or and how much, but, you know, my point, uh, um, another point that I just wanted to make uh, yeah, um, about salespeople and, uh, and feedback. Yes. Yes, we do. As people, we get, um, a whole lot of feedback and we get used to and knockbacks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it depends who's giving the feedback and what sort of feedback it is as well, I think is really important. And I think, you know, when we were talking about feedback in the book, it's more by, our superiors or our, the people who are coaching us and how important that feedback and how to deliver that feedback is. You know, I, I do agree that we get hardened to, well, no sale, no sale, no no sale. But sometimes it's why is there been no sales when we analyse that? And sometimes that's the stark reality of, of the knockbacks or better ways of doing things or being open to being coached. So, yeah, the really important points, um, you know, feedback and how it's delivered is crucial. Yeah. Mike and I talked a lot about the difference between a sporting environment and I'm sales glad environment. Said this. I was just going to talk about that. I'm really glad you've um, said And Mike said and I this. talked a lot about how, um, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever read the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers. Mm-hmm. So in Outliers, he talks about the big yep. kid that's born at the right time of year Gets the physique spot, and everything. Yeah, he's therefore he's bigger than the other kids. Therefore, the coach spots him. He gets more coaching attention. Therefore, he becomes a more elite athlete, and he therefore gets more coaching attention. And before he knows it, he's got his ten thousand hours. He's sixteen. He's playing academy football, rugby, cricket, golf, whatever, um, and he's an outstanding athlete. And all he's known since the age of six is being coached. That's it. He doesn't Sports know. People are used to being coached, aren't they? They yes, just don't know. They don't know anything else. They they all all they know is 
coach comes in, coach gives me feedback, coach supports me, coach teaches well, me, I, coach I, develops I, I, me. I, I drive to training. I guess the pie chart of a sports person is probably 80% training, 20% doing, I would suspect. Eat, sleep, train. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, what, we, what Mike and I have questioned a lot and we've debated a lot whilst we're reading the book is an elite athlete, whether irrespective of the sport, they are used to being coached. Mike and I, the question we have is, we've not really met many sales teams in, our, in 20 years of recruitment in sales. There's not many environments that I've looked at where I've thought that's a truly elite environment. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I just... I guess wonder are sales teams and as elite as, for example, pro sports teams. I think elite's the wrong word, Johnny. Our sales because sales teams are elite. Yeah. I think our sales teams coached as much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you but, refine the question, mate. Well, I think no, and that's why we wrote the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the basis of the book is you know, like Lynn and I spending a long time in sales, like you guys, and I guess originally I was inspired by good old uncle Herbert and thinking about why, you know, he wasn't such a great player, but he was a great coach and and leader and could inspire that and managing and coaching teams myself. I've always started with the people first and the results will flow from it, but I'm not sure many sales leaders do that. They start from the results and seem to go the other way. So I think the short answer is no. And that's why we wanted to write the book. We wanted to inspire more people to coach better. Um, with some good ideas and tips and techniques. And that was, you know, the feedback we've had is people are keeping the book and they're putting it on their shelf and they're referring it to, to it again. You know, so that's what we wanted. That's great. We, want, we wanted the, not a McDonald's book, you know, the kind of book you read and you think, I feel quite full now. And that was quite nice. But then in about a week later, you go, I can't quite hungry now because I can't remember what actually was in that book. So, you know, we just want to make better coaches in the sales world and, that's why we set out to talk to people like Tony and, you know, other great people. It reminds me of the first time you and I met Tim in that coffee shop with the question in mind, how mm. is it in sport, coaching's normal and an everyday part of activity and they seek feedback. That's the thing. They seek coaching. They, they demand coaching. They want coaching. Whereas in sales, you get coaching foisted upon you, especially if your boss has just been on a coaching course. I mean, that's the worst one. <laughs> and he comes back with all these new techniques and you're thinking, oh my God, what, what's happened to my boss, you know? Mm. So that's, that's, that's the exact question we set out with. And that's why we approached our, our friend Tony and said, can you, can you come in our gang and, and write this book with us? Yeah. It's true, it's true though. Um, and, and, and there is contrast there. We train a lot. We train our players to be elite or very good at what they do. Yet in business and sales, and sometimes we just put them on the on the job and expect them to learn on the job and expect them to do great things. And there is what we what we are saying is, hey, let's train more so we can perform at higher levels. Um, I had that experience early in my career. I was being a rugby player. And I was going off to training and training all these hours, but at the same time as working in a, in a bank, I worked in a bank for seven and a half years and they threw me in at the deep end and I kept making mistakes at work at my job because I wasn't trained well enough. They were just throwing me into it. They weren't giving me the, the understanding and practice before they put me on, on, the, on the front line. So I felt really inadequate in my job, yet when I went to my training, I'd stuff up at training, but I'd perform better on the weekend when it really came down to the business. So this is why this book means so much to me because of, of my experiences back in those times as well. Yeah. So can so we, I, go, go on, on Mike. I was going to say, can we extend the conversation between sport and sales? Because I do really like it, actually. I, I get why sports people and sales people bear lots of similarities. I really, I, I 100% agree with that. There's a couple of distinctions, though. One of which is I don't think, and I know Jonathan's going to agree with this, but I don't think selling is a team sport in the same way that sport is a team sport. May I add some context on that before mm. before mm. we get into Before I get leathered. <laughs> so I, I, I got absolutely pasted for saying this on LinkedIn the other day. I mean, really pasted. Um, but my issue with it is, and, and the question I wanted to ask you was why you titled the book Coaching Winning Sales Teams. I, 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 well, every time I pick it up to read it, I think, why is it not say Coaching Winning Sales People? Um, 
And I just, in sport, and Tony will know this, part of what makes a great rugby league side a great rugby league side is there's something about those great teams where a guy, that you can just see it in the team that they will die for the man next to them and that nothing will stop them letting their mates down. That just doesn't happen in sales teams. Sales, no, no sales guy gets up in the morning and thinks, I've really got a win today for the guy to the right of me. They get up in the morning and they say, I've got a win today for my wife, my kids, and that new driver I want for golf on Sunday. And so that's, it's, it's frustrated me all the way through the book, guys, because I, I, I totally believe the really best salespeople I meet are very selfish. They're more golf than they are rugby. Yeah, so I think it's a really great question. I think probably Tony could answer that actually in the rev- also from the reverse perspective of individual and team from the sports bit. So maybe debunk some of that that bit, and then we'll come back to the sales angle. Absolutely, yeah. You know where I'm coming from, Tim. Because <laughs> within teams, even within your rugby, you're right. Um, when you can get the whole group to work together and fight for each other and look out for each other, that's when it becomes really powerful. But even within Within the team, there's a lot of individuals. There's some really selfish people in, in our sport, as, in <laughs> team sports as well, that are going there to perform for their wife, their children, etc. Just exactly the same as you mentioned about salespeople. I've got some of those people that work for me. What I try to encourage those people to do is, hey, if you help the people around you also, we're going to have an even greater impact as a as a business, as a as an organisation, we all earn more money. Um, the business becomes bigger. You get more more uh, reward for for you helping the rest of the team because the whole business is going to prosper. So it's finding what drives each one of those people and understanding that, but giving them the right reason as to why they should meld with the rest of the team in order to make the whole team. That's the real art of coaching and bringing a, a team together rather than a whole lot of individuals. It's still the same as what I do. It's maybe a little harder in, in sales, but I'll hand back over to Tim for the rest of it. Right, thanks, Tony. It's a good point. Yeah, so I think from a sales perspective, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. They, they're all individuals, but there's definitely a team element for me. I mean, certainly the, the book is aimed at you know sales leaders and coaches, so they've got a team. If I'm looking at my team, I'm looking like Tony as to how I can maximize that performance. Now, I've usually got the curve. I've got the high performers who are probably, to some extent, the, as you'll know from, from the guys you look at, the high performers are, tend to be quite individualistic generally because they're just self-driven. Yeah. Got a lot in the middle. So, you know, in my days in Vodafone, you, you, you can't have all high performers. You're going to have no. the 80 percenters, as I would say. And then you've got the ones, obviously, that are not doing so well. And it's really the ones in the middle where we try to drive the extra five or ten percent out of them as a team, and that's why we focus on team element as well as the individual. So it's getting sales leaders to think about: okay, we've got a team of different people here. Well, I did need to motivate and coach in different ways, but I also need to drive performance at team level. I need to bring those guys in the middle up somehow. So you know, I've got to deal with the high performers as well, but I also need to look at it from a team perspective so yeah I think it's a team sport I mean I suppose Lynn and I really most of our selling as being in complex high-end stuff so that probably is more of a team sport than yeah when I first started out selling perfume for Unilever that <laughs> quite so much as a, a team sport that was quite individual so I think it's melding and driving those individual drivers with the team goal and I don't think you necessarily have to have the person say, yeah, I'm doing it for the team every time I get up every morning. I think it's the leader's job to draw those people in and make them cohesive as a culture and use those top people to influence the ones in the middle to bring them up. So we talked a lot in the book, Ken, every comment, you know, coach them up to try to improve them every day towards the high performers. How so much behavior... How much behavior do you think you can shift as a coach? From my, from my experience, Mike and I have often hired uh, 25-year-old thrusting male um, party animal graduates. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered over the years, yeah. yeah, what we've discovered over the years is the core kernel of the man 
you can probably mm-hmm. shift behaviorally, I think, plus or minus 10% in any given direction at a maximum mm-hmm. with a lot of coaching. Now, actually, mm-hmm. there is a fair argument that says, well, hold on a minute. If each one's got a million pound target and you can get a 10% behavioral shift over 10 of them, you've just done really well. Um, so I'm kind of overcoming my own objection, but <laughs> I, 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 I often look at it and think, how much can you really develop that salesperson? And how much behavioural shift and improvement can you get? I, I just want to um, pick up. I'll, I'm going to answer that in a second. Um, but I just thought on the team side of it, it's a big thing about creating an environment. So it's, you can coach people by giving them feedback and you know helping them in that way. But the best managers I've worked for that do create a team spirit, they do set the environment. So they create a team spirit. They don't just look at individuals within the team. Um, they create a vision for the team. They get people excited about being in the gang. You want to be in that winning team, you know. And I had one boss who said he loved it when people tried to coach his salespeople because he just loved the fact that he set all these great people up and people were trying to, you know, get them in their team. But they didn't want to leave because, you know, he created a trusting environment that you just wanted to be in his gang, basically. So there's that side of it. It's not just coaching. Um, but to come back to your question, it's linked to that because it's not just about coaching people in terms of specific skills and behaviours. It's about motivation, isn't it? And it's about wanting to belong and it's about feeling really good about yourself and wanting to do better for that person because you want to be part of that vision, you want to be part of that winning, successful you know, team. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think so, that's fair. Go yeah, on, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I've- yeah, going on to that performance thing, I mean, if, if I put my academic hat on and I read a lot of boring journal articles, it tells me, yeah, research suggests that it, it does without a shadow of a doubt, but they're quite small sample sizes and things like that. But I think we're talking, yeah, most of them would say 10 to 20% improvement. And we, we give an example in the book of one company who claimed, you know, 30% uplift through improved coaching. I mean, some of these figures are maybe not as yeah. measurable, but but I think for me, yeah, probably 10, 15 in that sort of region. And I think it's about the crux of it, though, is the ability of the leader to actually understand the link between the behavior and the, the outcome. So, you know, can they really get underneath the bonnet of what is driving that number to help that person improve significantly? And so you can measure that improvement. So... You know, how do you measure behavioural change? Is it purely just uh, the numbers? Yeah. Or, or do you measure it in some other way? Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, probably for me, probably 10, 15% difference. And it, across a whole sales team, that can be massive. So Yeah, if you've got a team of 10 exactly. and you can make and a it, 10% behavioural shift, then yeah, okay, I get it. it, it it's, it's significant leverage now. So, and so I, hey, I also so, think so in bigger teams, like in bigger organizations, if you've got a lot in that middle zone, which I think we had a lot in Vodafone and a lot of big companies, you get a lot of the 80 percenters yeah. who, who can get by every year. If you can drive a, more out of those guys, that can have a, a huge impact on the bottom line across the whole organization. And that's why companies invest in coaching programs, but then don't follow through on it. So, you know, they, they invest a lot in training in how to coach, but then they don't culturally follow through on it and it's the middle tier not the top tier for me i think in those big ones yeah i mean if you're in a smaller company then it's different isn't it because you've like the one i'm working with at the moment we've only got five sales guys and if you know you've much less at margin for forever in terms of how you coach those haven't you so where's your focus in that smaller client it's still on all of them um we've got two very high performers and then a couple in the middle and one down the bottom. So I'm trying to get new people in, to your point, coachable people that I know are good to come in and enhance that team. So I need to build that team so we're not just relying on the two guys at the front. Yeah. And what, and effectively you're building resiliency into the exactly. team. Exactly. Yeah. To, to spread that load a bit more. Because at the moment, every time I come to the month end, I'm relying on one person to deliver. And that's not fair on that individual every month and they start to get a bit pissed off that it's them that's well they crack in the end anyway yeah because you just put in saying come on come on tim do this deal again for me i need it and that's not fair on that person what we've also what we've also found is when you've got one or two performers in a team 
that are that much better than the others, they actually can become too powerful a personality in that team. And they have too much power over you as the leader. I think that same applies in sport, I would think, Tony, doesn't it? When you get into that position where you've got star performers. Yeah, absolutely. It's so it's managing, you know, the different personalities. But some of the top performers are, you know, very self confident, and you know they they're off. And you don't want to dampen that confidence either. But that's why, um, you know, good coaches are able to, you know, encourage some of those high performers to to coach some of the others as well and share some of their ideas and you know and make them feel important in a different way rather than. Uh, holding, you know, the company ransom because of how much money they produce or what income they bring in. It's giving them other roles and responsibilities to, you know, all this is, while you're talking about salespeople, I'm just sitting here going, this is exactly the same as my team. Every week that that I deal with exactly the same sort of people, you know, and some of them, as I pointed out before, are are selfish, some of them are self-driven, some of them are lazy, some of them are 25-year-old testosterone-driven young men that you're talking about. A lot of my my people are. And it's up to me to find, me and them, to find ways of them performing better and, you know, wanting to be more co- better and get better and, and be coached. So it's, you know, once again, it's back to the relationship that you develop, getting to know your people, getting to know what makes them tick and getting to know how how you can get that 10 to 15% out of them. And uh, the interesting part of that that I wanted to sort of throw back is, when you say an improvement of 10 to 15%, is that per year or is that in their lifetime? How do you gauge that? Because sometimes I'd, I'd argue that we might get 10 to 15% out of a player improvement this year, but next year, if he's on board, he'll go another 10% and the following yeah. year, if he's so not so good, he can go the other way too. You know, but if you're if you've got the right people and they're improving ten to fifteen percent each year, wow, you're starting to develop a pretty good, you know, salesperson or a pretty good athlete. And that's that's why we feel in sport it's worth that time to invest in the in those people because the longer you have them, the better they get. So, yeah. you know, it's there's a couple of questions there that you need to assess, you know, uh, yourself as as to whether it's worth it. Um, I certainly think it is coaching. Yeah, and and you know, Tony, you're going into the, you're going out. You've got to start thinking probably about 2021 season, and you're going to do some recruitment. And I, I, I know you can see it. Um, uh, and I think one of the things Brian McDermott was very good at when he was coach at Leeds was he was very good at bringing people into the group that wanted to be a in a group and b wanted to develop. Um, how do you look at a player or talk to a player? What what are you asking them that makes you think? Do you know what this guy really really wants to grow? How do you know yeah. when you've when you've walked out of that conversation? You think, okay, I could probably really develop you, and you yeah. really want it. Um, some of the players are. That I interview and I always sit down face to face where I can. If it's overseas, I try and do a a face to face call, but. Um, is crucial, but I, I ask some some different things to probably some other coaches. I ask them what their ambitions are. I want to know what they want to achieve in their careers, in their life, um, and and see how I can help them do that, or if I'm the right person to help them do that. And I've sat in uh, recruitment interviews and said, "Hey, listen, I'm not sure that I'm right for you, or you're right for me, you know, for our organisation." But I I try to get to know the people. That, that I'm looking to introduce into my team. I'm, it is crucial, even more than talent, it is crucial to get the right personalities. I don't mind if I know, um, if they're a bit selfish and if I know all that, but it, depending how selfish they are as to whether they're going to, you know, fit in with the team and the team's culture, as Lynn um, referred to earlier, it is crucial in recruitment to ask the right sort of questions but to understand the people that they are and get them to understand what sort of coach you are and what you what you expect of them. So 
Yeah, it's I, I love recruitment meetings. Um, you find out so much about people, but it's I want to know what makes them tick, and then once I know what makes them tick, I can decide whether that's something I can work with or not. Right. So there's some and and vice versa for them. I yeah. get them to ask me what sort of coach I am. Go do the homework on on me as a coach as well. Ask my other people who have been coached by me to make sure I'm the right sort of personality for them as well. I think it's crucial. Yeah. And Tim, from a from a sales perspective, mm. how do you see that translating? I guess if I'm if I've got a coach's mindset as a sales leader, mm. I should be interviewing for that. Yeah, I mean, I try and build into my own interviews. I would try and build coaching opportunities. So, for example, we might ask them to pitch something in a final interview, and in the interim, we would give them some some coaching in that, and just to see how they react to that, and whether they are coachable. So, do they okay. take things on? Or have they reflected some of that in the final pitch? You know, during the interview process, I think that's that's possible. Um, and also getting to know them. I often try to, we can't do it at the moment, sadly, but, you know, take them for a coffee or take them for lunch and see if I can stand them for 45 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Because that's We, we used be, to have a client that called it the five pint test. Yeah, I don't quite do five pints. I mean, that, that probably would have been in my younger days, but um, yeah, that kind of thing where you kind of see them in different settings, seeing how they react to that when they're, they're a little bit more relaxed. But okay. I also think setting up something in the interview process where, you know, you build that coachability in. I mean, I was re- reading Mark Roberg's book. Have you read that, The Sales Acceleration Formula? No. I was at HubSpot. It's quite a good read. Um, I don't want to sell other people's books too much, but they, that's, it's a good read. But he talks a lot in there about how he interviews around that sort of style. And I quite like the way he does it in terms of he looks for the, the raw material and then sees how, you know, coachable somebody is what okay. their energy activity levels are, and then working from that. So so here's a conundrum. I own a company, turns over £5 million. I've got four or five salespeople working for me, and I want to start growing and scaling the business. Hmm. Salesman walks in for an interview tomorrow. He's been in his last job for 10 years. He's not Mr. Target. He sells a directly competitive product to my own. Hmm. And actually, he's a bit of an arsehole, really. I don't really like hmm. him but it's pretty mm. obvious he's got black book of contacts. Mm-hmm. He knows what he's doing, but I look at him, I think you're not really a team player. I don't even really like you as a bloke. Mm. The next guy walks through the door, mm-hmm. likeable, not quite the same levels of achievement, but he wants to grow and he wants to learn. Mm. I'd be interested to know how many business owners of a business that size are going to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll hire the guy who I can coach versus the guy who's going to promise me his black book and has got the numbers to back it up, mm. even no though brainer. I don't like him. It's a no-brainer for me. I do it all the time in sport. I've had, yeah. I've, I get offered um, much more talented people sometimes than what I've got within my roster that I just know, and I'm going to use your word there, asshole, yeah. um, that, they're an, that they're an asshole. Well, they don't get invited into my team. No way. It's not worth disrupting the whole culture for the sake of some talent. Absolutely not. And so, hey, do you want both or is that person, are they coachable? Are we able to maybe get them to buy into what? Of course, we, you've got to consider those things and you meet with them. And But if at the end of it, you come up with the assessment that you've just made there, he's going to blow your company apart. So no way would I employ him if that's the assessment after you've interviewed him. Um, it's not worth it. So it's for me that question's so easy to answer. Right, Tony. My, my mates and I are convinced that there is a secret coaches network list of players that should be avoided. And you see certain players, we think so talented. Why has he not got a game anywhere? Yeah, and, and, and we reckon that you all just swap emails about them having coached them. Well. Listen, in this day and age, um, you know, first people I go to are fellow players, other players. Right. You played with him at such and such a club. How was he? Um, they're my best reference. When the when the bosses aren't looking, there, <laughs> they actually see what people do when the bosses aren't there. Right. You know, when the coach is not there. 
they're, they're, they're the best informers of each other. They'll tell you what sort of team people they are. They'll tell you what sort of, you know, what they do in their spare time, whether they're recreational, um, this, that or anything else. So fellow players, um, doing your homework, really, it's doing your homework. So, yes, part of the recruitment process is face-to-face. Have I got a vibe with that person? But doing your homework, doing your research on those people to find out yeah. whether they're going to be a good fit for your sales team or your rugby league team, that's really important. We see that a lot, don't we, Michael, where sometimes see, you, can't, I- <laughs> you can't quite work out why Candidate X didn't get the job. And actually it's because Leader X has asked around the business with people he knows and somebody's gone, oh, he's not right, that one. You see, you see I'm going to disagree with all four of you here. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think you're all wrong. You know, uh, and and if it was me and it was my, well, a client sometimes, not often, but clients sometimes will say, Mike, if it was your money, what would you do? I'll tell you who I would hire straight off the bat. I would hire the nutcase prima donna who hits target because my personal belief is that people should be self-motivated to bring themselves up. And I think if you've got somebody there who's some nutcase prima donna who's selling twice as much as anybody else, the people that don't want to compete with them will leave. They will weak anyway. They should have left. The people that do want to compete with them might not necessarily become prima donnas, but they will actually raise themselves by their own bootstraps. And I personally then think you will create a culture of absolute superb excellence. I'm no, I don't know much about rugby. I don't know much about football, actually, really. But I suspect that when you look at the Barcelona team, and you look at what, which for me has got to one of the best football teams that has ever existed in the world, I reckon there's a fair few prima donnas in there that are hard to manage. And I suspect that the managers that have signed those players have thought, yeah, Messi is going to be a bit, be a bit of a handful. Whatever, I've got to sign him anyway. And it's created like an almost a culture of brutal internal competition that I think personally, if it was my money, I'd just go and hire the nutcase prima donnas every time. So what you're saying, Mike, is just hire the, the most talented elite level people and anybody that doesn't keep up with the elite talented ones. Yeah, whatever, they can leave. They can I don't go. Care. <laughs> Has it worked so far? Any, are there any examples of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think we, so. We've I seen a few, haven't we, Mike? Yeah, I think when you look at some of the aggressive, you know, you look at the security market, software security market particularly, I know there's a reference in your book from somebody at Vodafone who ran, I can't remember the name, but they ran the software security division Mm. when I read it in chapter Mm. 10. I think if you looked at some of the software security guys, take it from me, they are prima donna nutcases. Oh, some of them are truly horrible people. I quite like it, actually. I quite like those kind of people. But they are crazy. I think we need to define a little bit here because, you know, when when we talked about, um, you know, some of the team members... I've got some prima donnas in my team too, but as long as they're not assholes or to the point where they're disruptive. And so yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, we're, we're comparing it, you know, yeah, apples and oranges here well, or a little ex- bit. Let's extend that then. So I, so I know nothing about rugby for which I, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, no. I couldn't tell you no, the name no. of any of your players. <laughs> and he's worked with me for 20 years. <laughs> I, I've never been to Headley. I've resisted the invitation lots of times. Um, but, Let's say, Tony Wright, you've got some guy in your team, Bill, and this is actually a particular reference to page 93 of your book, actually, as it goes. You yep. don't mention anyone called Bill. But in 90, page 93, you go, both parties need to put the effort into the coaching relationship. Otherwise, it won't work, right? So you've got Bill in your, in your rugby team, Tony, and you're saying, listen, guys, I don't know how many people in a rugby team, right? The other 12 are all doing this, but Bill, yep. you're just not doing that. Why aren't you doing that, Bill? And Bill goes, yeah, whatever, I'm your best player. I'm just not going to do it, mate. What do you do to Bill? Do you say, listen, Bill, toe the line or bugger off? Because you know he's your best player. Eventually, he either toes the line or he buggers, you know, or he gets the bugger off, you know, because I know that he's not going to contribute as well as he can and, and disrupt the rest of the team. And the sum of the rest of the team, you know, he'd have to be very good to beat the sum of the rest of the team. You know, so for me not to go and get somebody uh, of a similar sort of nature, oh, not nature, similar sort of level as him and not have that arsehole within my team, 
um, I know is going to be beneficial for my organisation over a period of time. And I'm not just talking rugby here. This is this is business for mine. You know, it, it rarely, rarely will you get a, a a performer that's so selfish and causes so much destruction that he over actually outperforms everybody enough for you to warrant keeping him. I, I'd, I'd question. Fair enough. Well, well, thank you. Well, let's move to Tim's coaching assignment then with five people, right? Mm-hmm. So, Tim, you've got his coaching assignment. It's got mm-hmm. five people, two top performers, mm-hmm. two middle performers, one bottom performer. Mm-hmm. I'm not bothered about the company name or whether the numbers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I would reckon from what you just said, your two performers collectively are outselling your other three performers. About mm-hmm. one of your performers out of the two is actually collectively outselling the three. Yeah. So one of your top performers, you say, right, what we're going to do today is we're going to do some coaching and it's one of your models on pages. <laughs> that what they are without looking at reference. So page 120, there's a model on there, I think. Mm. Yeah, page 120, there's a model on there. And you say, right, Bill, we're going to do this. Bill goes, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no chance. And you go, but Bill, you really need to do it. And he goes, yeah, I'm not doing that. And here's the thing, actually. If you make me do that, I'm just going to resign because you know I sell more than anybody else. I work for a five-man band. I go work for a 15-man band. He is holding you to ransom then. And as much as both parties need to put effort into the coaching relationship as per page 93, mm. I just can't see that happening. Okay, so yeah, that's a very current situation for me. So in the short term, I have to try and keep that guy motivated and hold that position mm. whilst I bolster the team to spread that risk. So I have to accept that I have that guy on the books at the moment. He's delivering and I need to maintain that, but I need to get additional resources in to spread the risk. Once I've spread the risk, then I can mitigate that and move that guy and I've got more ability to... Well, you to, care less, don't you, about I it? I care less about it. It's less. He's less powerful in the mix. Um, so that would be my strategy with that one. I can't, you know, if, if you're ultimately going to have, a, in my experience, if you've got a real disruptive person, I don't really want them in the team because they tend to bring the whole thing whether they're performing off the charts or not, they'll negativize the whole thing and the whole culture. So my job is as a leader to mitigate that risk for me, the team and the company by bringing in better people who can spread that risk. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. That might take me, and I I don't want to do the classic thing of, you know, I could like start interviewing next week, say, yeah, two people, got a pulse, get them in got a full team again <laughs> off we go that would be completely the wrong thing to do and that's what happened to this company and that's why they brought me back in because they hired a massive team in the states and Asia pack and they've all left within right. six months so you know, it's inter- thank you just you know, interested talking is to that you technology about- tim sorry it's technology yeah i, I know two SAS. fabulous SAS. recruiters who can help you with that <laughs> i can't think of one um, <laughs> what, what's interesting about the book is it's very kind of you mike <laughs> this is going to sound like an odd thing to say is, but all three of you clearly believe in what's in this don't you yeah I wouldn't have written it otherwise yeah, yeah. absolutely I don't you know I don't, I'm not looking for a million seller it'd be lovely I wanted to write a book about what I passionately believe in and we all three of us believe in it yeah. and we want other people to, you know we want the sales world to to be better at coaching and I think, I think that will only improve people as well. That will make them better. I think a lot of the IT world and sales, you know, we specialize in sales really, so we know a lot about, we know a lot about selling. Mm. I think a lot of people talk about coaching as a, yeah, one day we'll do some coaching, but right now I want you to hit your target. Yeah. Yeah. That's- yeah. yeah. That goes yeah. back to the um, patience. I mean, that was a word that you'd never see. Tim and I both worked in Vodafone. It wasn't, patience wasn't a word or a, a sense that you got, but in sport, I mean, you talked about Barcelona, um, read, I mean, I'm not a football fan, I don't know much about it, but read stuff on Pep, and he, he hires for culture, Alex Ferguson did the same thing, and Alex Ferguson wouldn't put up with bad apples in his in his team. So let's. So whilst we're on that, you raised a brilliant <laughs> point that I want to come on to, which is, Jonathan and I fell out about this a bit this morning, and I don't know that much about sport really, but... I personally think that to be a good coach in a sales environment, you have got to have been a really good salesperson. I think that is fundamentally different to a sport. I don't know anything, Tony, I don't know anything about the sport. I disagreed. He disagreed. He said, well, it doesn't matter if you're a bad salesperson, you can still be a good coach. 
No, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter if you're a bad salesperson, but it doesn't matter if you... I I don't personally believe you need to have a wildly illustrious sales career to be a great sales leader or great sales coach. Mm. And actually, often, both in sport and in sales, some of the best leaders and managers I've met have not been that illustrious in their either sporting career or in their sales career. And often you see sportsmen go into coaching jobs, the amount of times you see a footballer, particularly in football more than rugby, because for some unknown reason in football, you don't need to serve any form of apprenticeship to manage a billion dollar <laughs> football team. <laughs> well, no, but you don't, do you? You know, in, in rugby league, know. everybody goes to Australia and acts as the bottle carrier for five years before they even get near a job. Um, it, Let's it, stick on the in, point. <laughs> in football, you can manage, in football, you can manage Barcelona if you're a half decent player and, and the fans like you. Um, Often you see players where you think, Christ, he was a talent. And actually they go into management and they struggle horrendously. And often actually it's the player who might not have had an illustrious career, might be the guy that finished a little bit earlier and thought, but I'm not done with the game itself, who works at it, develops it, was a bright, intelligent guy and becomes a really good coach of other salespeople or other sportsmen. Mm. And I just don't think that's necessarily that valid, Mike. I, I agree, and I actually think in business, and from my experience, even in the in the banking world that I worked in, you became if you became good at your job, they promoted you, and then they put you in charge of the team. Well, some people that get promoted to be in charge of a team aren't actually very good coaches. They were very good at what they did, and they may well have earned the right for a promotion, but that doesn't necessarily qualify them to be able to lead people, coach people, or even tell other people how to do things. So I think I think there's horses for courses, personally, for me. Um, occasionally, you can get a highly talented person that can do both, uh, but it's usually the grafters who are better teachers or coaches than the highly talented. That's from my experience, both in the business world and the sporting world, because I think that person the grafters have had to really think about how to be good. Whereas often talented people or naturally talented people don't have to think about it. They just do it, but they don't really understand the process of it because they just haven't had to think too much about it. They just go on and do it. So that's therefore I think the strugglers are often better at teaching or coaching or, or supporting people when they either have success or failure. And to build on Tony's point, I think, and to partially agree with Michael, I think if you're coaching in sales, there comes a point where the person says, okay, what would you do? Mm. Eventually, you can't just keep asking questions. (laughs) No. The the issue is, though, is that person who's the coach capable of of articulating what that is? Now, if you're a real maverick, you might not actually be, you might just say, I would do this. And it doesn't make sense to me. I, I go to the sea level. And the guy sat, sat there going, well, uh, yeah. how do I do that? You know, uh, well, just get to the sea level. That's what I'd do because I'm a top guy. It's actually being able to, to articulate that message. An so you could be a, an unpack it. You could be a top performer, but can you articulate, you know, the, a, in a way that I would understand as the kind of 80 percenter, how to do that, that doesn't bamboozle me. But you do need to, Michael's point, I agree, need to be able to give them something at some point you can't just sit yeah. there and ask them open questions forever because they'll well, go you, well come on you've you've done it what do you recommend yeah how do you ask Lionel Messi to tell you how do you beat three defenders and put the ball in the corner of the net at 70 miles an hour well I'll just do it yeah he, he doesn't know because he's so unconsciously competent isn't he well you see it all the time on a Saturday morning I used to coach junior football you see it all the time you see the guy parent come up take the free kick kid just stands there going what am I meant you to know, do now? Well, you know, because he just stubs his toe and it rolls into the <laughs> side of the net somewhere. But it's the articulation, isn't it? How do you express that yeah. to the person so that they, they understand it in their world and make it achievable? So you can't say, take the free kick like Messi, take, take the free kick like Beckham, if I can only really go the first bit, like let's just break it down and start with it. Okay, you need to get your foot under the ball or whatever you're doing. One of the things Michael and I talked about a lot and we debated a lot when we were reading the book was the role of self-direction in a salesperson 
and self-development. And, you know, so, I, much I, so many great sportsmen and so many great salespeople that Michael and I have worked with. And we talked a lot about our audience on Book Club are very, they're already converted. They are, the people that listen to Book Club ordinarily are very focused on developing their craft. Mm. And therefore, they're probably incredibly easy to coach because they just want to get better and better and better. Yeah. Um, and I'm reading a book at the moment called The Feeling of Greatness by a guy called Mo Norman who actually people you referred to as the greatest striker of a golf ball that ever lived. Um, and Mo Norman used to, he had a very different golf swing to everybody else. Everybody else was taught to swing the golf club like Ben Hogan. Um, Norman's golf swing was weird, a bit ugly, but they say nobody could strike it like Mo. He could strike golf balls off Coca-Cola bottles and the bottle would still be intact. He used to pick, he'd play in tournaments and call shots out to fans. Um, he was a bit eccentric, but some people say he was autistic. And as a result, he never quite had the career he should have had. But they say as a ball striker, he was unreal. But Mo Norman used to stand on a practice range and hit a 1,000 balls a day until he developed what he called his single-plane golf swing. And he just found a way. And Michael has always had this viewpoint, which is that lad over there, if I put a gun to his head and told him I was going to kill him and his family if he didn't find pleasant, a deal. Pleasant metaphor. <laughs> Mike's got... Mike's Sounds like a target and a yeah, yeah. If I put yeah, a gun yeah. to his head and told him I was going to kill him and his family if he yeah. didn't find a way of finding some customers between now and the end of the month, mm-hmm. I bet he'd find a way. And actually, the ones that always seem to make it, in, whether that's working for us or whether we look at them in other environments, they're always... They're the ones that are self-directed from a personal development and coaching perspective. They mm. want coaching. They, it, it, they, they go out and find a coach. Mm. You know, Michael and I had a meeting yesterday. What came out of the meeting? Let's get a new coach. Mm. Absolutely. Could I ask Why? you a question? We want to grow. So, so that for me, the issue is a lot of people want it, and it's that desire more than anything else that actually really makes them performers above and beyond anything else. Mm. Could I ask you a question about observability, please? I know we're running a bit, you know, we're running quite long here, so I don't want to keep it too long. But I think in sport, it's quite easy to observe what's going on. You've got TV and replays and blah, blah, blah. I think in sales, it's probably a lot harder. So actually, and do senior sales guys want to have the calls recorded? Probably not. Do senior sales guys want to have managers coming with them to appointments? Probably not. Do they want to do KPIs and et cetera, et cetera? No. And that for me was a part where the, the sort of the similarity between sales and salespeople fell down a little bit because it appears a lot easier to observe sports people than it is salespeople. So what's the answer to that, do you think? Yeah. Do you want to have a go dig yeah, I think observation. I've got a fly here. Sorry, I think <laughs> observation comes in many forms. So I think in the old days it would be the the joint meeting, the curbside critique, and I think there's still val- validity in that, and I think we sh- we still should do that. Um, but it comes from conversations that you're having. It comes from watching that person in a team meeting, in a sales meeting. It comes from um, having the one to ones with them, uh, analysing the data with them. What's the data saying? Because you know, we learned a lot from the coaches we spoke to. You, you don't just look through your own biased lens at somebody because often we have a similarity bias and we like things we see that are like ourselves. So mm. we can see personality traits that are like us. We are that's really good. Um, but to get a lot, you know, a, a, a good clear picture of somebody, you have to look at many, many facets, and they're, they're available in sales. It's just that in a busy, impatient sales environment, we don't take time to do that. So we tend to look at a certain number of things, KPIs, target, et cetera, and we ignore the rest because we're too busy, distracted in our own world. So I think it's a conscious effort to make an observation in a sales environment. Mm. Yeah. But what about now when everyone's working from home? You know, Mike and I, we moved out of our office yesterday and we're a 100% remote business. Um, That's it. We're never going to have another office building again. So as we grow and part of moving out of the office is it's created opportunities for us to recruit again in the next few months. Part of as we grow, I'm no longer going to be sat in an office thinking, Christ, that guy got crucified on that call. Maybe I'll ask him tomorrow about it. 
and I'll make a note in my diary, say, hey, I noticed you had a bit, bit of a tough time with client X yesterday. Want to talk about it? I can't do that now. I'm not there. And there's a lot of leaders out there now with big teams who are all sat at home having tough moments that they never know about or having what would actually ordinarily be observable coaching moments that they wouldn't ordinarily know about. What's your advice and prescription for those environments now? I agree that it's a challenge at the moment. I really do um, because of some of those things. But I'm also going to argue um, that we're probably asking each other how we are a whole lot more than what yeah. we have ever done before when you were in the office. Like, you know, I, so many Zoom calls and so many one-on-one calls that I've had with my players or, or, or just people in general, and you go, how are you doing? And if I was in the office, not very often does that actually happen. Like we're actually, because of some of this lockdown and because we're so isolated from each other, we've actually been checking in on each other a whole lot more, you know, and making sure that we are okay. okay. And I think we are asking questions a bit more about the person rather than how's tricks or how's the business going, you know, what's news. You know, I actually think we are asking, and and it's funny. Um, even in sport, we're we're finding that some of these Zoom calls, when we're doing appraisals, some young people are actually happier to do it rather than in an office or over a desk. That they're actually happier being in their own environment. That they're willing to expand a little bit more about themselves, and they're a bit more right. comfortable. Um, so. There is some talk of in some organisations, particularly in football, of doing appraisals like this in Zoom form from here on in rather than face-to-face because they're actually getting a whole lot more, particularly from younger people, expression and, and getting young people to articulate better from their own environment. So there's pros and cons about this. I, I do agree that it, it is a challenge at this point in time. Um, but I think we're up to the challenges and we we make those adjustments and compensations because we're not over the, the uh, water cooler and, and or the coffee in the um, in the rec room okay. that we actually are able to check in more and need to check in more and ask some more pertinent questions of each other. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think f- for me, I think it's around looking at um, what are the evidence points in the kind of tech world. So if I go back to current example, they use Slack as an instant messaging. So I'm I'm, I'm kind of looking at that to see what mm. you know activities going on. What's the kind of general vibe comments people are making? Um, am I checking in or checking up when I'm calling them on the Zoom thing? Am I you know yeah checking up to see what they're doing or am I checking in to say they're okay? So. I think it's to observe in sales, you need to earn the right to observe and you need to build that trust. So I find my guys will say, come on the call with me. Will you come on this call with me? That's where you want to get to where you can just come and you're not, you're not then going to lambast them afterwards. Yeah. You should have done that. You should have done this. You should have done that. You're going to try and build up a picture from a number of data points. I mean, I'll look at the, you know, old fashioned, just look at the calendar in Google. Right. See what the activity levels are like, what meetings have they booked, what does that feel like against their usual rhythm of doing it? Am I seeing a dip off a little bit where I would normally see him have 10 calls a week? Why, why is that? Let's explore that. You know, is that a market thing? Is it a... And just looking at all the different signals, you can only pull from what you could see and you need to take all those different sources and then make, you know, paint the picture yourself as to what you think the reasons might be. And then you can see from a call like this, I mean, I go on ones with my university colleagues and you can see some of them look, you know, they've just had enough of doing the Zooms and, you know, what's their general persona like, how they're feeling, what's in the background, all of that kind of stuff. It's, you just... You, you, you are right, you know. I do completely agree with that. I, I um, and it's not a disagreement with you, it's more in a, how applicable it is into the market mm. insofar as if you've got a sales guy at hundred K basic, I just don't think he's going to want you scrutinizing his diary and giving him grief about going to two appointments a week. I just mm. don't think he's going to want that. I think when you say the word grief, I think it's about me looking at things and then deciding how to communicate that to a person. 
Yes, you do. I don't need to go, oh, you're not only doing two a week. We could be talking about a market issue generally. So yes, I might I, say... I use the word grief incorrectly because I... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like a trigger, yeah, trigger point. Yeah, context of your book, yeah, actually. Yeah, so, so, so really thinking about, okay, what's this pattern telling me about what's going on? It could be a market thing or a territory thing, which happens, doesn't it? We just know that career is not going well. That's not that guy's fault. But, you know, what can we do as a company then to support him and coach him my, through? My guy, I, I don't know. Sometimes I get the impression that we feel that coaching is giving grief or giving, you know, feedback that isn't positive. Co- good coaching is, hey, well done. Hey, those two clients that you've got for this week, that's brilliant. Hey, if you're producing so well with those two visits this week, sometimes it might be the appraisal or the coaching is, hey, keep up the good work. Well done. Keep it going, mate. You know, so, uh, you know, that, that, I just think sometimes we get the impression that coaching is picking up on people or pointing out what they're not doing so well. I'm I'm a coach that I love to find when people are doing things well and use that and use praise as a as a really powerful tool. And if I if I can find a player in training or a person who's selling doing well, and I say in front of the group to that person, "Hey, keep going. No, you're doing a great job there." Wow, that becomes contagious. Everybody wants a bit of that from their boss. I don't know. I don't know anybody who doesn't like a little that's, bit of recognition. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really important part that we sometimes get confused about coaching. Yeah, it's interesting. Very Michael, good comment. Sometimes you speak to salespeople who are very senior, and one of the things they talk about when you get into values with them when they're looking for their next job. You say, what's important to you in your next job? And they say, I want to work in an environment where you get recognized for what you do. And that's actually a higher level value than money. Mm. Well, you see, it's different, isn't it? And I kind of disagree with you all <laughs> a little bit again, which is if you're a sales guy, right, and I pay you, let's just keep the numbers simple, £100,000 for a £2 million target. Thanks, But yeah, 100K basic, £2 million mm. target, 200K mm. OTE. Mm. And you hit your 200K OTE. Should I say, well done? I don't think I should. I think I should say, you've done your job. Tony's shaking his head. I think, <laughs> I think you should say, you've done your job. That's what I employed you to do. It's a bit like, you know. Well, a lot of that's uh, contextual, no, Mike. Hang on. Yeah, exactly, bit, contextual, yeah, because he could be blown out of the water against the other five or something, and that would be, bit, uh, yeah. But it's a bit like going and finding an A&E nurse and saying, listen, A&E nurse, bloody well done, no one died. You know, it, just, <laughs> it is though. Salespeople are employed to earn £200,000 a year, not £100,000 a year. And should we be congratulating them for having done the job? No. Absolutely. We just spent two hundred grand. Well, we clapped for the NHS uh, and everybody else for several weeks, didn't we, for doing we the did. job? So they, went above, everybody, they went above and think... beyond their job. They did, they did 200% to target. They didn't I do 100%. Think, they did, we clapped them for doing 200% target. They're very careful, I've got to say, because they don't want to fall out with loads of people. Yeah. But, you know, so what you're saying, Mike, is 100% is minimum. Target, we're not clapping for them. I think, Michael, you would we say, you know, I think you'd still thank them, but you'd say, you know, what can we do to go beyond that? You know, I think you've got the capability to go well beyond that. What, what do we need to do to support you to, to do that next year? But should we well, cheer them for acceptability to get into Mike, a point of back into salespeople? Mike, I want to come and help you in your business, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll get your high performers performing even better, mate. Honestly, if you're not saying well done when people are doing a good he job, does say I, well done. I can easily come and improve your business. Michael is actually a very pleasant human being and he does say well done, but he, he, he is stingy-ish with praise and he gives it where it's deserved. Good. I'm sort of with him. I'm with him a little bit because I mean, we we have you know in some companies now. I think it's more of this kind of younger generational thing is the need to be praising everybody all of the time, and then praise becomes somewhat because watered down, Hello. meaningless. Yeah. So I yeah. think you've got to to decide when the right time is to put that Absolutely. praise. I think Tony absolutely agree with that, and Lynn. Uh, you can't be saying well done guys all the time and I think there's a bit of that, that kind of thing going on at the moment where we just like 
you know, well done for opening the door and folding yeah, well done for getting paper. 30% to target. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Great. Yeah. It's just so, what I wanted. So I think it's context, as you said, Jonathan, and also the timing of it and how many times you do it. It's the same with the, the reverse, isn't it? Um, how many times do you give really a stern message? If you're giving that stern message all the time, it just dilutes. But if you give yeah, it absolutely. when it absolutely needs to be given, then it's, only it's, so like, it's, it's like shouting for my dog. I shout for him 10 times. He didn't come the first time. He wasn't going to come the eighth, was he? No, and there's, there's only so many hairdryer treatments you can give a sales team before they just switch off. We used to have a colleague who used to say, listen to the content, not the volume. Um, okay. uh, and, you know, if you're turning the volume up all the time, people just go deaf, I would imagine. So let's wrap up. I've got one question and I want an opinion from each of you. A young, a sa- I'm not interested in yours, Pricey. <laughs> um, a, a salesperson has just been promoted into a leadership job. And he's, he's keen, he's excited. This is it. First sales leadership job. Mm-hmm. He's got his team. Aside from all the issues of the fact that he was one of the boys a week ago, or one of the gang, he's now sat there. He's got his team to manage. What's the one bit of advice as a new leader you'd give him that you'd say, listen, that's your first killer point? Get a good coach. Right, okay. Good comment, I reckon. Lynn? I would say be transparent and open with them and set off on the right foot, how you mean to go on and um, and ask them what they want from you as well. So make it a two-way conversation. Right. Tony? Treat them as you would want to be treated yourself. Nice. Okay. Right. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You've been outstanding guests. And it's been a really interesting book for me and Mike because parts of it have frustrated the life out of us. Um, And then parts of it have been really interesting. And actually, we had a really interesting debate this morning as to what we always give a book marks out of 10. I gave it seven, depending on context, um, which is pretty good from me, by the way. That's a good score. No one gets eight, nine or 10. Mike gave it a bit less, but for me, I think if I was coaching context a sales... is the key word. Context, yes, it, context, for us, context. it was all about context. If you're coaching a sales team above a certain size in a business but where you are leading teams, then it's a great book to read and it's a good one to stick in your armory. Um, and I'd like to thank I you all for well allowing us to cover it. it was. We didn't cover it, but uh, you know, as research goes, it is well-researched, I thought. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, really thank you, guys. Tony, good luck this season, but not that much good luck. Don't be coaching now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. See you, everybody.